Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, Matthew Barzin and the power of giving away power. One reviewer said this about the book, that it makes a lot of sense for empowering groups, businesses, nonprofits, educational institutions, churches, even marriages and families. What is the power that Matthew Barzin is talking about and how do you give it away? A Louisville resident, Barzin served as U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom and Sweden in the Barack Obama administration. In the 90s, he joined three others in the CNET startup and has a number of other projects currently underway. I spoke to him in his Louisville office near Cherokee Park. Matthew Barzin, welcome to Think Humanities podcast. Uh, it's a uh, Pleasure to meet you and to um, have this time to, to talk with you. I'm so looking forward to it. Thank you for having me on. What was the, the motivation for writing this book? Wow. Uh, starting off with a deep one. I, uh, you know, I knew that I had been a witness to um, a different kind of leadership um, in my life thus far. And I'd seen um, this kind that I was really attracted to. And more often than not, I'd seen the opposite of it. And I didn't have names, and I do in the book give a name to these two different mindsets. But um, I knew that from experience that I was kind of, uh, had grown almost allergic to this one kind of mindset because I was seeing how much kind of energy it was killing among people and groups of people. Um, and wanted to do something to try to highlight and raise up this other way of looking at yourself and those around you that I had learned from others and I wanted to help kind of uh, highlight that. It seems like to me from um, the power of giving away power that you had studied, you'd researched, you'd read a lot of so-called business books, Mm. you had uh, uh, read uh, business gurus, and it it wasn't something that you wanted to emulate, or uh, you knew there was a better way. Well, it's interesting. I mean, right behind us, when we're talking, are all these books that I have read, and I, because we've moved a lot, you know, going overseas twice, moving forces you to hold on to what you really uh, love and value, and maybe say goodbye and give away things that you don't. So I've sort of narrowed the books that I. Uh, own. And I've kept actually a lot of these leadership business books. I mean, the good ones, the ones that really resonate. I think most of them aren't that great, uh, but I do really like them. Um, but as I grew older, I did find, I started to find these, this same pattern uh, that I felt was kind of unhelpful, which was basically, and I think we'll get into this, but this sort of looking at everything like it's about winning and losing. Uh, which does have its place in our lives, professional and personal, 
but it's not the only thing. And so many of these books and so much of the kind of leadership advice that was being passed on to the next generation, I think, kind of perpetuated this perspective um, and crowded out this other one that I thought could be much more uh, empowering and, uh, and kind of useful for where we are today. The, the pyramid concept, whether it's top-down or, or bottom-up, um, it's tired and you discovered that, so why doesn't it work anymore? It just seems like that that was what uh, everyone learned in uh, graduate school, that that's the way to run the world. I mean, that's right, and I know that we're on audio, so it's a little, um, I'll be drawing pictures with my hands. But, <laughs> but uh, Aristotle evidently said once, um, the soul never thinks without an image. The soul never thinks without an image. Now, I didn't learn, I learned this from a reader <clears throat> after I wrote this book. I wish I had learned that before, because it would have been the quotation at the beginning of the book. So I think we do carry around these images in our mind. And I think so often it is what I call the pyramid, the world of up or down, in or out, ranking, rating, sorting, sifting. We're all pretty good at that, I think. Um, because even though the sort of most extreme form of top-down leadership is certainly out of fashion, right? Like the bully boss barking orders from the corner office. It's like, that's out of fashion. Um, but really, if you look around, government, nonprofit, for-profit companies, big and, small, you, big and small, you name it, that hierarchical mentality is still out there. And most importantly, Bill, it is in each of us. And, and that's what I try to get into in the book, which is that if you've lived in a hierarchy for any amount of time, very appropriately, we all get really good at it. Because at, at its basic thing, the pyramid, which is my name for hierarchy, it, it, does, it has uh, a head, it has a point, and it has divisions. That's sort of the basic economics. So what we do is we get really good at asking ourselves, who's in charge? What's the point? Where do I fit in? Who's in charge? What's the point? Where do I fit in? Just think about your first day at some job you had. And we kind of ask ourselves, we ask that of ourselves, we ask that of everyone else sitting around the table. Um, because in a hierarchy, that is a really important set of questions to ask, right? Because that's kind of like the power cables that link the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top, and, and it's all like a well-oiled machine. But what happens, I think, to all of us is that um, we get really good at knowing who's up and who's down. We get really good at focus, and we get really good at chopping things up into their component parts. Um, and we lose sight of, in kind of a corresponding way, as we get good at up and down, we lose awareness um, and sensitivity to other kinds of order, like mm -hmm. the order of the solar system or the order of a tidal pool at the beach and all sorts of, or the order of the notes and harmony and melody of your favorite song. Mm -hmm. There's lots of other order other than top-down order. And as we focus, 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 we tend to get tunnel vision and lose awareness of things to the side of us, behind us. And finally, and I think really importantly, when we get good at chopping things up and compartmentalizing, we lose a sense of things that can't be isolated into just one subset. We lose the sense of what happens between and among people. Um, so things like a competitive landscape or customer satisfaction to use business terms. None of those things can be understood in isolation. So what I'm hoping we can do is change the mindset, um, and I think we'll get into this, um, and 
try to get out of this pyramid hierarchical mindset. Anyone who reads the book... That uh, was a mouthful, I'm sorry. No, 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 because I think that uh, leads us right into uh, constellations. Uh, mm. Anyone who reads the book uh, discovers and finds out that it doesn't take you long uh, in the beginning of the book uh, to begin to talk about um, the concept of constellations and of stars or mm. a star and how they uh, interact with other stars. Yeah. Um, how is that, how did you first see that that was a way to uh, apply the thinking that you wanted to uh, to this new order that uh, you wrote the book about? Well, it's so funny, you know, we, when we were talking earlier, that last question, I knew all the way along in this journey what the symbol was. Um, I knew it was the pyramid because it's it's the image that comes into my mind when I think about the mindset that, that has been sort of, in, you know, uh, embodied inside of me, like all of us. Um, so I knew that shape. So for a while, when I was writing it, I just called it the pyramid, and the and there was just a blank. And I was like, I don't know what the right symbol is for this other thing. And I tried out snowflake, but that's become sort of a loaded term politically, and that would be misleading. And so then I just called it the pyramid and the fuzzball, and it was just a placeholder <laughs> name. And I didn't tell anyone because it's sort of silly. And then I'm sitting there one day looking at the back of a US dollar bill. And there is a pyramid on it, you know. And then I look over at the other side. And by the way, the back, it's the American logo. It's the great seal, right? And um, so I'd seen the eagle with the talons and the olive branches and the shield in front. And I'd never noticed before this thing above the eagle's head, which I don't have great eyesight anymore, having turned 50. And it looks like a fuzzball. So I bring out my glasses and I look closer at it, and then I go to Wikipedia and I'm like, "What is this thing?" And if you look, it's on the, it's bigger on a U.S. passport, you know, because they only have the front of the logo there. And uh, so I went, as we've all done, I think those rabbit hole of Wikipedia, which is just so fun. So I get into this whole history, which I don't think we probably have time with, but basically, it took longer to design that logo than it did to win the war, back in the you know 1776 to 1783, and. Uh, but they finally do, and they come up, and, and there's the motto that they came up with right away, which was from many one, e pluribus unum. They got that right away. They couldn't get the design right. Then they finally come up with a symbol that is what they meant by from many one. Now they could have meant from many bricks one pyramid, and that's a legitimate thing, but that is not what they meant. They put the pyramid on the back. So right underneath the constellation, it says from many one which is kind of a weird thing like how can you be at once yourself and be part of something bigger um, and they wanted us to think for all their faults right we fell short of this idea then we still do but this idea that you could stand out as an individual be a star look at everyone around you like another star and then and this is crucial figure out well what are the connections between and among us to make something bigger more powerful more useful than we ever could alone that's the constellation I think it's the best idea America has ever had from many one, and this is the symbol back to Aristotle that we ought to have in our mind to guide us. What connections will we make to make something bigger, more powerful, more useful? Um, it is, to get sort of a technical term, I mean, it is a symbol of interdependence. That was the best idea America ever had. Every year we celebrate Independence Day. I get it. I like it as much as everyone else. Any band of revolutionaries can declare independence, and they do it all the time. The hard part is not how do we be free from King George, 
I mean, that was hard. But then the real hard work, how could we be free with each other? That's what the constellation can help with. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. But I'm also thinking about the uh, research um, of the of the men and women that you write about in the book. Uh, you paint uh, really bright pictures of how they came to this same conclusion. Mm. And if you don't mind, just tell us a couple of those uh, stories briefly about now. If uh, Tell me about uh, uh, John Winnett. Is that the way you pronounce his last I name? I think it's Winant. Winant. Um, and he went by his middle name, Gil, John Gilbert Winant. Um, and I will, but can I? So he was this amazing, shy, awkward, yeah. um, stammered a lot, um, Republican politician, uh, who FDR, who was of course a Democrat, asked to go serve uh, and go over to London and do the job that I did, except he went over in 1941, when America is not yet in the war, and every American possible is fleeing England, and he shows up, and he makes it his mission to try to get America into this war and to make their fight our fight. And he's this amazing story, because he's still not really well appreciated. I mean, uh, this amazing author named Lynn Olson wrote a book that I recommend to everyone called Citizens of London, and it really is a book about him. I think her publishers wanted her to add some more famous people to the cover. Edward R. Morrow, for instance, great journalist, so people have kind of heard of him. Avril Harriman also. So she had to add those two, but really it's a story about Gil Winant. And uh, he was what I call a constellation uh, leader um, and did this amazing job teaming up with Churchill and FDR and making that whole um, thing happen. I would argue outside of FDR and outside of uh, the men in uniform, he did more than any other American to get us to, to join the war. But the woman I'd really love to talk about if we can is this even less well-appreciated, amazing person, um, where Harvard Business School in 2003, I think it was, they do one of these surveys and they ask um, business gurus from around, leadership gurus from around the world, so from academia, business, government. Who is your guru? And they compile the list and they publish this thing of the guru's guru. Number one on the list is Peter Drucker, a name I think familiar to listeners, probably the most quoted leadership um, thinker. And uh, One of those that I was thinking of when I asked you that first question about uh, business books and, yeah. and gurus. And I mean, his, you know, you know, his stuff all, is, everybody is, knows Peter Drucker his stuff and, and is others. on the shelf yeah. behind me. I mean, it's yeah. just great. And uh, so it turns out towards the end of his career, towards the end of his life, he admits that he had a guru. And I was like, okay, now this is interesting. And by the way, his guru doesn't show up on any of the guru's gurus list, but this woman, it's Mary Parker Follett, 1868 to 1933, she is the guru's guru's guru. And she is remarkable. She was the most sought after speaker on what we would say is sort of the CEO circuit now. Um, she had kind of the viral TED talk of her day. This was 100 years ago. Now. So she's writing at a time in America, grew up outside of Boston, spent her whole life in Boston, and I think she's very relevant to us today. She's writing 100 years ago when America's coming out of a global pandemic. Everywhere she looks, she sees division, racial, social, economic division, raging debates about the power of big business, raging debates about government overreach and trying to deal with that. Sounds sort of familiar. Um, and she said all those... Um, 
all those issues can be very daunting and big, but there's something actually each of us can do about it right now that's very practical and tactical, beginning at our next Monday morning meeting, so to speak. Um, and she figured out, uh, and we can get into this or not, but she figured out yeah, please. Um, that, like these other leaders did, like Wynant, like others, um, that power isn't something that you should lord over other people. Okay, got it. Power isn't something you should hoard to yourself. And, and this is tricky, power isn't even something you should divvy up and share, even though power sharing is a term that is in vogue for good reason right now. She's like all three of those mindsets around power, um, either directly or subtly, uh, imply that it is a scarce resource. There's only so much of it. So if I've got 10 units of power, I ought to give five of them to you, Bill. But so, and she's like, no, no, no. Power isn't something you mine like coal. It is something you make. It is infinite. And you make it with other people sitting around a table. And so she has all this great thinking about how we ought to conduct meetings with each other. And she's like, democracy doesn't only live on election day. It is in every meeting we have. And I don't know if we want to go deep into how she wants to do that, but it's very no, no, tactical and practical. Talk a little bit about that because I, I think um, she is uh, one of the... F She's a character in your nonfiction book. I mean, she yes. is uh, um, one of those people that, if uh, if not for someone who's alive and breathing and and, and was uh, a contributor, uh, she could have been a, a carefully drawn uh, character uh, mm. and and a protagonist in in a yes. novel, for yes. example. So tell us more about her. Well, and, and by the way, I want to recommend another book. Uh, I've never met this biographer. Joan Tan, T-O-N-N, wrote a great biography of Mary Parker Follett. And mm. so, and it, it is nonfiction, but it's a beautiful mm. read. And so it got me, um, uh, so I learned a lot about her there. And and, uh, and I hope lots more will get written about her because uh, she's remarkable. And, and so she says, okay, look, um, four possible outcomes of any meeting. Uh, three of them are bad and one of them's good. So first bad one is you try to go win the meeting. Like you come in with a fully formed idea. She's like, "That's why did you have anyone else at the meeting? What a waste. Number two, you do the opposite. You just acquiesce and you think, oh, Bill seems really pushy or mm. Betsy, let's let them have their day. She's like, that's no good. You're depriving the group of a unique perspective, namely your own. Third outcome, this is tricky, that's bad, um, compromise. Now we're all told that compromise is a good thing. Um, but she says, no, uh, compromise is no good. The, the image actually, the, the story she tells to try to bring that to life, and this is hard for us to understand 100 years later, but lots of people were getting their homes electrified for the first time, right? So that was a big decision, it was a big expense, and it was dangerous, potentially. So she tells a story of, this is why compromise is bad, um, uh, she tells a story of a woman who's inviting the electrician in to electrify her house, and the woman has a plan in her mind of, she's thought about it, she's saved up the money, how she wants all the lighting to go. So she says that to the electrician. The electrician is like, ma'am, I cannot do this. Uh, your house will burn down. Like, that's a very unsafe. We have codes for these things and that doesn't comply. He said, I think we should do this to your house. And she's like, are you kidding me? I have to live here, you get to leave. I can't live in a house that, like that. So she says, look, you have this disagreement and what are you gonna do, compromise and say, well, okay, we'll have half your plan and half your plan. So half the house will burn down and half the house will be uninhabitable because it's so ugly. 
She's like, no, and this happens, she says, all the time. And this is, by the way, gets us to the fourth and only good outcome of a meeting is co-creation, making something together that neither person came into that meeting with, but both people leave with. So in the case of the electrician and, and the homeowner, they will figure out and work on together. Here are my constraints around safety. Here are my constraints around actually living here. And they will work out and work through a lighting plan that won't burn the house down and will be attractive. And you think, that's what we should do in every meeting, make something. And this magic happens, which is if you make something, it is forever part of you, you are forever part of it. And the way I reflect on this for all of us dealing with America, Louisville, wherever, Kentucky, where we are, is that we can bring three expectations into our next meeting, inspired by Follett. One, expect to be needed, so bring your whole self. Two, expect to need other people. That's why you're having a meeting. And most importantly, and third, expect to be changed. That by all means bring your full self, right, number one, but there's a reciprocal obligation to leave that meeting just a little bit different than you came in. Because if you have co-created something with those other people, you are different now. You are enhanced and so are they. So that when you bring your whole self to the next meeting, it's a little bit of a better self. Mm. And you don't keep bringing the same stagnant self. And that, I think, is so important. Yeah. Well, you do such a, an interesting um, profile of her, and, and she is a, a big part of that. And uh, the other one, uh, another woman uh, that is in uh, the power of uh, giving away power is Jane Jacobs. Oh, yeah. So just give us a little portrait of Ooh, it's her. so hard because I, I, I <laughs> wanted to do a much bigger portrait of her. There's a famous book... Um, uh, called The Power Broker, about Robert Moses. I don't know if you ever yeah, read oh, yeah. that. Right, the Robert Caro. Sure, broker. yeah, Famous. and then he went on to um, Johnson. Uh, exactly. And he keeps so, I mean, writing, I don't, I don't but, have the yeah. book behind me, but I mean, yeah. it's like a thousand pages. I mean, it's a big, fat, amazing book, all about Robert Moses. He was interviewed after he wrote it, because once you get into that history, Jane Jacobs is the woman, with a lot of other amazing women, who was the only person who ever stopped Robert Moses from bulldozing his way through people's lives. And, and so she comes into the scene when he's trying to build, he's trying to link up what is uh, sort of the West Side Highway with, with FDR Drive, and he's gonna link them at the bottom of Manhattan, right through Greenwich Village and Soho and this treasure of New York. And Jane Jacobs happened to live there. And he did it, Robert Moses, in the name of slum clearance. She's like, you call this a slum. Urban is, renewal? Yeah, urban renewal. I mean, yeah. all the bad stuff that was done by do-gooders, right? These are progressive. I think it's a really good cautionary tale for progressives everywhere to think about the devastation that was done in the name of progress. And they destroyed neighborhoods in Boston, it, where it, I grew up, in Louisville, in Baltimore. Isn't it why we have um, I-64, 264, well, yeah, I-71, it, it, and 75 here it, in Louisville? And it's one thing to do river. bad things and destructive things, but to do it and then say, you're welcome. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? In that condescending and like, we know what's best for you. It's just awful. Anyway, so I got into that story. I mean, he's a thousand page book and he doesn't, doesn't mention her. And he later feels terrible because he's like, she is such an important role, but my original book was 2,000 pages and they made me cut it and I cut out a whole thing about Jane Jacobs. So I was determined to get Jane Jacobs into my much shorter uh, <laughs> uh, book, but I had a longer section. I ended up cutting it back. But she, um, she was asked towards the end of her life. So she's famous for standing up to Robert Moses. She wrote The Death and Life of American Cities. And um, 
which is still her most famous book. But she wrote many, many more books, and that was the first one she wrote. She wrote many up until she lived till 90-something. And in her last interview she gave, she was asked by someone, do you want to be remembered for standing up to Robert Moses and, she, or, you know, and standing up to all the bulldozers? And she said, no, not at all. I mean, I'm glad I did that, but I wish I didn't have to do that. If people would stop trying to destroy life, you know, because um, she just saw death. You know, these bulldozers, um, they called them slums. She's like, this is what vibrant places and real life looks like. Um, and she compared it to a rainforest. Um, and this is the powerful image. Uh, she said, look, picture the rainforest in Brazil. And then on the map, we have a map here in front of us, go exactly across-ish and imagine you're in the Namibian desert. She's like, now both places get identical inputs. They get identical amount of sunlight, which is energy you get. They just do really different things with that same amount of sunlight. In the rainforest, that energy from sunlight gets recirculated, reinvented in this crazy, wonderful, weird, hard to understand, complicated, beautiful energy recycling way from the treetop canopy down to the topsoil and everything in between. And then she said, and look at the Namibian desert. It just comes in, some of it gets absorbed, most of it gets just bounced back up. And she's like, that is true in human affairs too. Um, and vibrant cityscapes are like a rainforest and they may look confusing and jumbling or whatever, but that is life that's efficient, that's doing great things with energy. And then we come along and we bulldoze them down and we basically have deserts in their place and it's terrible. So she ended up fighting all of that because she wanted to preserve life. But she said, what I want to be remembered for is um, insights into economics and how actually cities grow, which is this whole rainforest, and that we need to recognize that there is order and there is stability within sort of rainforesty kind of stuff. It's just not the rigid kind of pyramid-y, picture a pyramid in a desert. It's not that kind of order and stability. It's a different kind, and we have to get better at seeing it. And that's what she devoted her life to. Mm -hmm. And she fits into the constellation. Big time. And, and, and there's a great, uh, she was really savage when she wrote this first book um, in the New Yorker magazine. They wrote this really condescending, uh, critical article of this book. And it's like, who is this? lady, because she wasn't particularly well known. And they use the word and, and it's like, oh, you know, they're talking about a neighborhood in New York and it's like, it's just the kind of constellation Miss Jacobs loves. And then they describe all the elements of a streetscape that she loves. And mm -hmm. they call it a constellation, which I got a kick out of. We're going to pause here and um, uh, take a break, but I, I want to come back on the other side and uh, have you talk about somebody else who you uh, think was a big part of a constellation that you uh, were involved in for many years of your life, and that is a guy by the name of Obama, was it Barack Obama? Barack Hussein Obama. Let's and talk about it. We'll him. talk about him uh, after we hear from our great friends who underwrite this podcast for Kentucky Humanities at Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits 
and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. So, Matthew Barzen, um, not everybody, I know this might come as a, a shock to you, not everybody knows that uh, you uh, had a friend in uh, Barack Obama before he was president. Uh, he was a mere senator at the time. I think you might have first met him. Um, and um, he also, and this is curious for me, did he come to the table the first time that you met him and got to know him with the constellation uh, effect already sort of inbred in uh, did, did, did he practice it already or oh, yeah. did that develop over the time that you and he were 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 struggling yeah to make this happen and oh no I, I mean he wouldn't have used that word but he definitely was embodying this mindset and I saw it we're, we're sitting here in the old Schultz flower shop but I will show you after we stop recording the actual table that I want to tell you the story and I have mm. a picture of it right there. Yeah. So it's 2006 and uh, he's, a, he's been a senator for two years. I had been involved in the, my distant, distant cousin um, with John Kerry. So I got involved in his presidential campaign, never having done any of that before. Um, and then, so I was sort of on the list of people who were helping, um, and so that's how he got my name. So he just cold called me, um, and I ended up picking up the phone, and then we talked, and he asked if he could come to Kentucky, and so I said, yes, please, I would do a fundraiser for him. And I said, this is not for president, this is for raising money for the Senate. But we didn't even have a Senate race in Kentucky, but I had seen him live in Boston for that amazing, there are no red states, no blue states, there's only the United States. at the States. time, you weren't even a fundraiser. Well, when I saw him, it was 2004 at the convention for yeah. Kerry, and I had been raising money um, for that. And then, yeah, so I was. I mean, okay. sort of early days and, and right. sort of, uh, you know, volunteer fundraiser. So he calls up and he's like, uh, hey, I heard you, you know, you seem to be doing stuff in Kentucky. I've been given sort of the middle of the country. I think he got Illinois to Louisiana. And so he's just looking through some Excel spreadsheet in D.C. Like, so I pick up the phone. We talk. And I said, I will do... Um, I will do a fundraiser for you uh, or for the Senate, but I. But would you please come and do something for free? Because most of the people in Kentucky aren't going to afford to come to some high-dollar fundraiser, and it would be a shame for you to come all the way here and then just leave and meet, you know, 40 people. So he said, "Sure, just don't put anyone weird on stage with me," which I loved. I never met the guy, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I love that! Like he's he's gonna he's gonna do it." Um, and I made good on my promise to have no one weird. I put a guy named John Yarmouth <laughs> on stage with him. He's who was strange. Who was trying to win uh, yeah. his race uh, to be, yeah. to, to be uh, in Congress. Okay. Anyway, so we go, uh, I team up with these two amazing Louisvillians, uh, Brooke Pardue and Carolyn Tandy, and many others, but we kind of form this little group um, for the free event. I do the paid event. And I meet him at the airport and we're driving in and, he, and he's, uh, oh no, actually I flew down with him. And he, uh, we were really late, really like three hours late. And I'm like mortified, you know, and I'm like, this is terrible. And he's like, oh, are we gonna skip the free thing? He has no idea what it is. He's like, skip the free thing and then go to the, I was like, no, 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 we're gonna take all the people at the fancy dinner and send them. Because we had actually filled up, not all of, but a big chunk of Slugger Field. 
And so we had thousands of people. He thought it would be like, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe not even, who's supposed to be there for six minutes. He stayed for almost an hour. It was magic. I had all the people from the sort of high dollar fundraiser just go down to the Slugger Field because like, this is where the action is. And it was amazing. And so, um, so we did that. Then we did the fundraiser thing. Then he spent the night. The next day I got to take him to go meet Muhammad Ali, which was really neat because they both really admired one another and it was fun to be able to, to, to be his chauffeur that day and take him down. Um, but, the, but Muhammad Ali's schedule changed, so he had this bonus hour of, uh, of time. And I just assumed he wanted to catch up on his Blackberry because you know, we had kept him pretty busy and he was a busy guy with his uh, day job as a senator. And he said, no, 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 that's okay. Do you want to, are there any people you know who like, couldn't come to the rally or Republican friends or independent friends? I was like, sure, got a lot of all those people. So we hastily sort of pulled together a group, sit at that table right over there. Um, and he goes around and we spend an hour. And afterwards, there's a long-winded answer to your question. Um, so we do the thing and then we go down and take him to meet Muhammad Ali. And, and I, two comments. One of the people who'd been around the table said to me afterwards, that was amazing. He is such a great speaker. And it was really interesting because he had given an amazing speech at Slugger Field, which she hadn't been there. And he barely said a word when we were sitting around this table together. Because I was there, I was taking notes. And what he actually had done was he had started, I think, clockwise. And he had just asked everyone to please share a hope or a fear about their country. And we have Republicans, Independents, Democrats. And they all did that. And then at the end, he sort of synthesized it down. He sort of linked why he was considering running for president. He hadn't decided yet what his hopes and fears were for the country, how it overlapped with theirs, and what he might try to do about it. And so he had spent not that much time talking. What he did say was, he's pretty good at that, um, but it was really them who were talking. Yeah. And then someone who couldn't come said to me, oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. Did he light up the room? And I knew what they meant, or I think I knew what they meant, which is we've all seeing these yeah. political figures from both parties who are incredibly charismatic and when they walk into a room they're kind of like the sun you know and they just like radiate charisma or whatever it is and we just kind of that charisma bounces off of us and the room lights up i was like not like that at all i was like but the room got lit up but not because he's the sun he just kind of got everyone to switch their own light on yeah. by asking and listening and it was really basic but that made a huge impression on me and fast forwarding in the, in the campaign, so I get, he runs for president, we end up coming doing this big low dollar fundraiser here in, in Louisville, and then I get asked to come help do those around the country and I get really, really involved. And then we ended up doing these things where we would do these trainings in Chicago for volunteer fundraisers from all around the country. And we'd get 100 at a time, 10 tables of 10, and they would always say, and this is how this connects to the lesson I learned in Louisville, which is, um, you'd ask people at the beginning of the day, what do you want to get out of today? And 90% of the people would basically say, I want to leave this day armed with talking points. And there's, the word arm is interesting. Armed with talking points so I can go home to Boston or Austin or wherever and win the argument with my progressive friends about why they should support Obama and not Biden or Clinton or all the other, Edwards, all the other people who are running. And I knew what they meant, but inspired by what I'd seen from, and I said, well, Okay, quick show of hands. How many people here like to lose an argument? And it gets kind of awkward and quiet and no one raises their hand. 
And it's like, okay, so if no one likes losing an argument, why are we in the argument winning business? You know, I was like, how about, and then I just basically said, why don't you try to do what Barack Obama did when he came to Louisville, sit down with your progressive friends or your non-progressive friends or your Republican friends, whatever, and just ask them what their hopes and fears are, listen, link it to your own, and say, I'm working hard to raise money because I believe in that overlap of what you care about and what I care about, and open up and say, would you like to help? It's pretty simple, I mean, it's hard, but it's simple. And so that's the sort of pattern and tone that I think he embodied. And then if you fast forward to the, the last time he came to London when I was serving as ambassador over there, we invited in that same spirit. We, the Brits were baffled because we call them town halls and we know what they mean, but that's a weird term for a British person. So we had to sort of explain what we meant by a town hall, which is just like a big group of people and you can ask questions. So we did and it was uh, mostly just young people, uh, which is uh, what we wanted. And he gets a great question from this young woman in the back and she says um, something like, how do you, what would your advice be for someone who wants to make positive social change in their city? And I figured he must have been asked this question a million times and he would have some, but he, he sort of took a long time to, just thinking and he sort of rolled up his sleeves and then he said, okay, I think you should be predisposed to see the power in other people. Predisposed, and I was like, oh, and it wasn't like catchy and it didn't rhyme and it wasn't very clever. It was just true and, and how he looked at the world and I thought back to that time in Louisville and that sort of led to mm -hmm. the title of this book. The predisposition to just make that assumption and that now I say it's like, think of yourself as a star, look at everyone else like a star and figure out how you can make a connection to them to make something bigger. But you did something similar uh, with uh, during your ambassadorship uh, with young people um, that we talked about before we started taping. And and uh, but you were curious enough to listen to them about what they thought about America. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was um, that was not something you weren't you weren't speaking to them. Um, to make your point, you were you were wanting them to give you feedback. I'm always curious when I meet people from another state and I want to ask them about their impressions of Kentucky, mm. particularly Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky, because nine times out of 10, I might be talking to somebody who has moved here and maybe settled in for a while and they will respond. It's not anything like I thought it was or like really? people told me it was going to be. Oh, sure, that it's, uh, the people are really nice. They're, uh, some are troubled, uh, but they're struggling, they're trying. And you were kind of doing the same thing, were you not, with the kids? Uh, what do you think about America? Yeah, I mean, I, the background was that, that the people at Pew Research had come out, right as I arrived in London, they'd come out with this global study of whether people in these 40 countries, um, basically all European countries, plus Japan and Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa and Brazil, like 40 countries, asking everyone basically thumbs up, do you like America? Are you kind of neutral or do you not really like what the United States is up to? Um, all of the countries, young people, people under 25, had a higher opinion of America than their parents or grandparents, except for one country, which was the United Kingdom. Um, now the good news was that their parents and grandparents had a pretty high opinion of America, but young people who are one day gonna be middle-aged and one day gonna be old, and I thought, well, look, this is, 
that's not okay. Like we got to do something to increase trust, respect, and understanding of this next generation, who don't remember Churchill and FDR and world. You know, they remember yeah. uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Edward Snowden. I mean, it's just yeah. like th their associations with U.S.-U.K. Yeah. collaboration are quite different. And so I knew the one thing I didn't want to do, which is go give a lecture and try to you know win an argument with them of like you ought to like America. It's not going to work. I had three teenagers. Um, so I decided to do the opposite. My wife uh, was trained as an art therapist. Uh, Brooke, so I basically did art therapy, but I didn't call it that because that would be creepy. <laughs> I'd give them a blank index card and a pencil from the embassy, and I'd say, draw me a picture of something that frustrates you about America. And then I was, and I, or I'd say, frustrate, confuse, or concern. I just wanted to, you know, something basically negative. Um, and they would do that. And then... Uh, we'd spend about 55 minutes talking through that and then they would say it out loud I'd write it on the board and we'd talk about it and at the end I'd say okay flip over the card and write a word or a picture of something that inspires you or gives you hope or you love about America and they did that too um, and I showed you at the beginning the word cloud so every time we'd update this word cloud and by the end I'd been to 200 high schools I had 20,000 index cards and the and 10,000 of them had nearly the identical doodle which is a handgun. So their number one fear and frustration was guns, followed by racism and police brutality. And I remember making, I showed it to Secretary of State John Kerry, and I showed it to President Obama, anyone who came, Secretary of Defense, anyone who came from official Washington, which was everybody, because they all come to London. And I would have a copy on my, in my office of the word cloud, and I'd give it to them. And I'd say, well, this is what young British people are inspired by on the happy side and frustrated by. And I color-coded it, it wasn't very subtle, that everything in red, all the words in red were what we would, as Americans, call domestic policy, and everything in blue is what we'd call foreign policy. So foreign policy might be surveillance, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, those kind of things, Middle East peace, and they're on there. They're just really hard to read because not that many people write them. On the word cloud, they're very small, and all the big words are red. So to me, it's like domestic policy is foreign policy whether we like it or not. And we can make the red-blue distinction, but they don't. Um, and so I continued it, Bill, when I got back here. I had no official reason to do it, but I just, it's so energy producing. Um, like Mary Follett had said, like you just kind of go in with this group of people, they don't, they're sort of skeptical. And then you just kind of build this thing together, kind of make, I don't even know what it was we're making, but mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't trying to win an argument. Yeah. They weren't trying to win an argument. Whatever we were doing, I think did in a small way increase trust, respect, and understanding. Um, and so I kept going here, and it was different because I didn't ask them about the UK. I did Southern Indiana and basically Louisville, not at that scale, but got same format, very different results. So number one, frustration and concern from American high school seniors, uh, division, social racial, economic, followed closely by loneliness. Loneliness? Uh-huh. And then their number one hope and inspiration about America, their country, um, was diversity followed closely by freedom. And so, and this is as I'm trying to figure out this, what became this book. And so I'm like, okay. So if you just take the, the diversity and division, what they fear most and want most has the same root, D-I-V, div, so it's something about separateness. The good part about separateness, which is like on your, you know, yourself being valued for who you are as an individual, hugely important to them. 
um, but not so much so that you're just lonely. Um, and then div in diversity wanting lots of other to be themselves, but not so much that we get split into hopeless tribes that never talk to each other. And then, and this is as I'm doing the journey of the pyramid and the fuzzball, and I'm like, and I'm like, okay, well, look, what they want is to stand out as themselves, and fit in to something bigger. Stand out and fit in. And in the pyramid world, you either fit in or you're left out. Um, and and I thought, well, here is this symbol, this constellation, um, which was written long ago, and is on the back of a dollar bill, on our passport, we just look through it, we don't, we don't put it at the front of our minds, and it is what those young people were asking for, a symbol and a set of habits of how they can stand out and fit in, that is right there hiding in plain sight, and we just don't do it. And so, um, and by the way, I don't think it's limited to young people. I think we all want to stand out and be ourselves and be part of something bigger at the same if time. If they don't find that, if the young people don't find that, does that lead to the loneliness uh, aspect of their lives? Which, frankly, uh, uh, is uh, sad. It is, and I think, and it's, it's sort of easier for grown-ups like us to sort of, you know, and I think, you know, that famous thing, if you're pointing fingers, three of them are pointing back at yourself. It's like, I think what, what is true of them is also true of us, but let's talk about, quote, young people. And it's funny, like, anyone who says the phrase young people, that's how you know you're old, right? <laughs> so it's like, old people. Yeah. No, but they, it, it is, and there is this sort of connection paradox, which I think has been written a lot about, and it isn't new, which is, okay, never in the world have we been so connectable. Never have we felt so disconnected. So there's that weird thing going on and all the promise of the internet and connectivity and all the downsides that we're all struggling through um, and but we all suffered an aspect of that Matthew during the pandemic and during the quarantine yeah we still were plugged in maybe more so than ever before yet uh, studies now will tell us a research uh, numbers uh, that um, people were were feeling uh, lonely. Oh yeah, I mean, d devastating in ways that we are sort of aware of now, and I think in the coming years going to be even more aware of the 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 costs of of what that did to to everyone. You know, I the positive because I am hopeful here. Um, that, uh, that, that there isn't this forced choice for them to, and because grown-ups like us reinforce this, I mean, we would never want them to be lonely, but we end up passing, and that's why I close the book with all these graduation speeches, and I'm a sucker for good graduation speeches on YouTube, but the people at NPR compiled like the best, you know, 400, 500 graduation speeches, and they did this text analysis and all this stuff, and they basically was like, here are the top five themes that we are <laughs> telling uh, young people at graduation. I'm gonna pick up the book here and read, even though I have it, you know, and it's like, we tell them, change the world, listen to your inner voice, work hard, don't give up, and embrace failure. And I think those are all kind of head nodders, right? So like, yeah. yeah, yeah, sounds good, mm -hmm. right? And that is better than, you know, 
sit out, shut up, slack off, give up, and freak out. Like that's like the obvious, right? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But I don't think it's really helpful. I think that is incredibly kind of solitary advice, right? Like you go change the world, listen to, like inner voices for most people are strange. I mean, your inner voices say weird things to you and they're, they're, they can make you feel more lonely, right? And so, and this is at the end of the book, so I don't want to jump ahead because it's sort of, but once you sort of realize the, the hidden pyramid perspective, so this is basically like, good luck, climb a mountain, climb a pyramid by yourself, here's a backpack, good luck. You know, and, and I guess if you had to sum it all up, it's that really famous um, kind of graduation speech uh, that Teddy Roosevelt gave at the Sorbonne in 1910. Um, and it's the uh, it's not the critic who counts. It's the man, and he said, "Man, it's the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood." Now, President Obama, who I'm a big fan of, um, read that at John McCain's the eulogy he did at John McCain's funeral in the, one of the most beautiful bipartisan rare moments of the last ten years, um, and he read it because. John McCain, as a, as a uh, U.S. Naval Academy grad, all the midshipmen have to memorize that, right? So that's pretty cool. Um, Nelson Mandela loved it. Uh, Brene Brown, who has writing, I think, is amazing. She loves that quote. All her books are inspired by the Teddy Roosevelt quote. Um, LeBron James has it etched into his basketball sneakers. So these are a pretty amazing, diverse group of and you leaders. It too. And I was made when I was 11. My uncle John made me memorize it, um, and so I have it totally stuck in my head and uh, I am really frustrated by it and I think it is really unhelpful advice to pass on to the next generation now look I get it I mean um, I mean I get it is annoying to be uh, second-guessed by people you know who don't know the first thing about what it is you're struggling with right or working on so I get all that but what I don't like about it and what I think is really unhelpful is that it forces us into one of two choices you either go into, it's a gladiatorial reference. I mean, the arena that he's talking about is like, go fight it out, and I'm not gonna do the whole quote here, but most people know it. Fight it out and like win or lose or die trying. You know, it's just like, go do that or, so fight it out, or be a bystander and sit on the sidelines. Thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, that's the picture, of gladi the movie Gladiator. That's your choice. And if those are the only two choices, I get why being in the arena is a good one. I just think there's a third choice out there um, which is not fight it out and it is not sit it out. It is uh, play it through, work it out. All the things we do with other people that don't lend themselves to winning and losing. And I did this test when I came back from London. Whenever I was with five people or 10 people pre-COVID, you'd get together and I would, I would do this little parlor trick and I'd say, okay, what's the opposite of winning and losing? What's the opposite of winning? And everyone says losing. And I'm like, okay, what's the opposite of winning and losing? Then everyone gets kind of quiet. Nine, this is unscientific, but I asked like <laughs> thousands of people. Um, uh, I, nine out of 10 of us will say something like, I, I don't know, not playing, or I don't know, sitting it out, right? That's literally what they say. One out of 10 says playing, living, being, learning, laughing. And the cool, there's this moment where the nine out of 10 of us who said basically, not playing, once they hear someone say playing, their body language changes and their shoulders, they're like, oh, right, yeah. And it leads to this interesting discussion of like, well, look, the things you mo value most in life, 
I'll pick three that I value a lot. You know, parenting, your career. You cannot win your career. You cannot win parenting. Um, and when it comes to marriage, you can't win one of those. But if you try to, you could certainly lose one. So it's like all these things we value aren't winning and losing things, not pyramid things, not up and out things. And yet, nine out of 10 of us are like, if we're not winning and losing, we're doing nothing. And so once you make them hip to like we're playing, you know, with others, through others, it's like, oh. And that starts of like, wow, we are so entrenched in this pyramid mindset that we can't remember all these other things that we ought to know. Um, and if you go back to graduation speeches, and I've gotten to give a few, and they're fun to do, but you sit out there, I mean, the, the idea that you're preaching these people like basically you're on your own, good luck, change the world, is ludicrous. They didn't get to or through university by themselves. They are surrounded by grandparents and parents and friends who, you know, all of these groups. And later that night, they're going to go sit around a table with other people, thinking, maybe drinking, whatever. They're going to be around tables with other people the rest of their lives. And if they go and sit around those tables thinking, am I going to win this meeting or lose this meeting? Back to Mary Parker Follett, like what? You know, that is one mentality and mindset to bring to a table. Or what might I make with these people sitting around the table? Yeah. And that's a big mindset shift. It's subtle, but it's really important and big. And I'm hoping that more of us will make that leap. And it is kind of a leap, right? It is a leap, but it is an important leap. And um, uh, we appreciate the time that you've spent with us. And I think one of the things, not until uh, we're recording the podcast, did uh, now I think that uh, it, it takes some some critical thinking or some deep thinking to, to go away. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the uh, in the busy time that we all live, uh, getting ready for something like this and reading late at night and all this, now, now, now I need to, to, to think about it because it is a... You didn't come to it overnight. It's a it's a different mindset. It really is, yeah. and it it's um, and why I tried to talk about sort of different leaders because some will love the sort of history part. I mean, some people really don't like the history part, and I understand because like early American, seventeen seventy, you know, it brings up a lot yeah. of appropriate. Yeah, yeah but um, some people are like, oh, I wish you didn't do that. Cut me right to these business <laughs> leaders because the biggest commercial organization, you know, Visa in the history of the world, is a constellation. The biggest recovery platform, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the story of how that grew. Yeah. Um, so different people will find different connection yeah. points. And one of the things I'm learning out talking to you and to others in podcasts is these readers who will be like, oh, well, have you thought about how it applies yeah. here? And it's really fun. I was like, no, but thank you. Yeah. And let's, you so know. So there is a uh, the possibility of a second book or a follow-up? I want to. I'm already two, sort or, of like, oh, yeah. my whiteboards are filled up with, yeah. um, I really want to go out and, and talk about this one and get people pulling and wrestling with and pushing back on these ideas um, for now. But the number one question I've gotten so far, if you categorize them, is like, okay, um, there's kind of three types of people I've met so far. Group one is kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, look, I've been acting this way my whole life. I didn't have that word constellation or that image, but that's kind of helpful, great, you know, sort of preaching to the choir. Second group of people, have done well in the pyramid, found stability and, and order in it, but are, have seen the limit and the load it imposes. Uh, the first three words of the book are pretending is exhausting. 
and they're sick of pretending in that way that we're often asked to. Um, and so they're open to this other way of thinking, and that's exciting. And then there's a third group of people, also wonderful, who are just like, nope, I don't buy it. The pyramids have gotten me this far. I don't, that's too risky. It makes me nervous. And that's really fun to engage with those folks. Anyway, I was say, long those story are the short. You want to meet. Yeah, yeah long story I mean, short. I love all yeah. three. And then it, but by the number one question is sort of like, okay, I get it, I think. You know, I mean, I, I get the mindset shift. I see how it's helped these other innovations and organizations that I use every day, the internet, et cetera, Wikipedia. But like I work in a big company or a big government agency and it's really pyramidy and I can't change who the CEO is. Could I make a meaningful, just my team at my next, can I do this? And so a lot of really tactical, practical how questions, which I'm excited. I love that stuff. I didn't put it in the book because I wanted the book to be short. Um, so that's what the next one, yeah. I want to be very sort of tactical and practical around how you might bring this kind of change into, into the workplace or into your life. Well, Matthew Barzin, uh, thank you so much. The, uh, I definitely see a part two uh, coming, uh, and we'll look forward to that. Um, uh, it's a good read, The Power of Giving Away Power, and there's a lot in it uh, for uh, different readers. So uh, thank you very much for the time. Thanks for having me, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.